What if you could unlock the extraordinary power within you? Join us on our Human Potential podcast as we explore the limitless possibilities, the holy trinity of mind, body, and spirit. Discover easy-to-action tips, inspiring stories, and expert advice to help you tap into your highest potential and live a life of purpose and fulfillment. For a free transformational tool, go to soulful-awakening.com forward slash free. So welcome everybody to another edition of the Human Potential Podcast. I'm here with Sarah, who is a grief tenderer. Tenderer? Is that correct? Grief tender. Grief tender. Thank you for correcting my English. (laughs) A grief tender. And we are here to talk about the very powerful, very emotive topic of grief and all the things grief represent around sadness and sorrow and heartbreak. And I was very blessed to meet Sarah about a year ago where she held my grief. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Can you just tell us about who you are, what you do? And actually, how you came to do what you do, that's, a, that's an interesting... I'm a grief tender, so we work in groups, with groups of people, to support and to offer a space where grief is welcome, where all the messy parts of grief are allowed to be present and seen and experienced. And it can feel that grief is something that is often hidden away in... Modern mainstream culture. Yeah, so it's really different when there are spaces where we actively choose to bring it and go towards it. That's the the tiniest snippet about what is the work of grief tending. But in terms of why, what brought me to this work, it felt as though increasingly it was the missing piece for me in the communities that I was part of. It was often present for different reasons either people's personal experiences or some kind of collective situation or what was out there in the world. And it felt like it was the thing that wasn't being spoken about. And for me, I'm always listening to what's not present and how do we bring that in? How do we acknowledge it? How do we give space to it? And increasingly, I came to understand that it was really necessary for healing, for understanding for group dynamics uh, for processing the kind of complexities of the me too movement and situations in groups that i've encountered where there's been somebody that has been behaving inappropriately and how do we handle that what do we do with that so not just around yeah, I think that's one of the things that I'd love to say at this point, if that's okay, is what do we mean by grief? Mm. Let's start there. Mm. What do we mean by grief? For me, there's this real tendency to have a very narrow definition of grief. It's sadness in relation to bereavement. So I want to bust that wide open. Grief is a whole bunch of feelings, including not feeling. It might look like anxiety or anger or shame or guilt or fear or and of course sadness and tears we may also look like joy or relief or gratitude and it might also just be 
whatever it is too big to feel. So not feeling is a really important part of the spectrum of feelings that grief might include. But also this concept of feeling that grief, and I mean that in its broadest sense, is something that people experience in relation to all kinds of things, not just to bereavement. I think that's a very important point because people can experience grief relating this back to everyday events, like a loss of a job, yeah. a loss of a house, yeah. a loss of a relationship, but not mm-hmm. necessarily a bereavement within that mm-hmm. relationship. So it comes on many forms. It has mm-hmm. many shapes and sizes. Yeah. And before we talk further about grief, I would love to talk about your childhood, your background, these communities that you're part of, yeah. where you witness this missing piece, as you put it. Yeah. Yeah, I... I... I was a kind of nosy, curious, quirky, odd, weird little kid. And I felt like I was the person who was always looking in the drawer to find something or asking the awkward questions. Did you feel like you ever belonged in your environment growing up? I've always felt a bit of an oddball. But I come from a family of oddballs too. And What does that mean? What does oddballs mean? Because I know what it means in the conventional sense. You've just explained it. Someone quirky, a bit weird, someone beyond convention. Yeah. That's what it. That's what an oddball, that's yeah. how I would define an oddball. How would you define an oddball? Uh, so maybe having a slightly different perspective or a different experience or looking different or being aware that I'm living in a slightly different situation to the other people around me or that my family is a bit different to the other families I see around me. Was there any grief in that? Were you aware of the grief that may have been associated with that? For me, it was as a young kid, you you just have the life you live. You don't know what it's like to be someone else. You might have a, yeah, I knew I was a bit different. But that wasn't a problem. That was just how it was. And I celebrated that and I've celebrated that more and more. I deliberately chose as I grew up to look different in certain ways or to choose the non-conventional route. So I celebrated that as well. And do you think choosing grief as part of your life and holding people's grief is part of that? Mindset, if you will, not so much called a mindset, but that kind of environment that you grew up in because grief and what you do is not very accessible. It's not very known that there are people out there who tend to people's grief, who hold the grief, who serve people in their grief. Because up until a year and a half ago, when I was actively looking for to be part of a grief kind of environment or grief ritual, I had no idea these things existed. I think often grief chooses you, you don't choose it, it comes to your door. I think I was born into an environment that was where grief was present, but I wasn't consciously aware of it. But my first conscious, deep experience of grief was at 23 when my father died, uh, very suddenly. Yeah, for me, it can come as an initiation. The first big grief can be an initiation. And then how do we respond to that and what happens? And my experience of that was 
I didn't know how to handle it. I felt as though I had no tools. I didn't know what to expect, how to behave. I didn't feel like I was getting much help from the people around me. Did also didn't know how to handle it. But I didn't feel that in my particular group of people that there was an accepted cultural working model of how to deal with this situation. So I did things like ate lots and lots of chocolate and drank rum and found alternative ways to soothe myself mm. and I, felt, I just felt like a mess and yeah maybe this is the moment to say I think everybody's grief journey is really unique but yeah there are common themes but it isn't in popular media, there has been this tendency to hear the stages of grief and assume that's a pattern that should happen or does happen. So, yeah, that, that's, that's been blown out of the water that, also. That's a really yeah. interesting point because that's actually my first point on my notes is that there's the conventional model. Yeah. And I'm calling it the conventional model from um, Kubler-Ross, right? The, the yeah. five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And... From my experience of grief and having delved into the journey of grief and yeah. learning from different teachers, yes, that's true because I've experienced those emotions and it's been non-linear in terms of where yeah. I've been on that conventional grief, the grief stages. And I've also recognised there's a whole aspect of grief that is not captured by this model. So I'd love to get your thoughts so, on So Kubler-Ross yeah. um, originally proposed these stages in relation to the dying process, mm. not in relation to grief. Mm. And they've been solidified by popular culture in a way that they were never originally intended. Mm. And I think it's now been really from grief researchers and theorists and people who are working now in the field of um, grief research that a grief journey is not a linear, predictable, prescribed route. It's Those stages may happen, but they may happen all at once, or there isn't a, this is how a grief journey should look. I really want to give permission to recognise that people are different. Everything about them is different, so why would their grief journeys all look the same? And to really allow people to know that whatever they're experiencing is what they're experiencing and that's okay yeah yeah and and it doesn't mean it's going to be easy but i think people are very quick to to judge themselves or to make themselves wrong in some way that i should be feeling this or it should look like that but so this is why i wanted to bring this first point up because i know conventional lenses looking at very emotive subjects are maybe not necessarily the full perspective yeah. of what that subject is like you said and we've already talked about grief has a specific definition and can mean different yeah. things to different people and grief is experienced in very different ways as well yeah so for me i'm totally in agreement with what you're saying that conventional model yes it's useful and it's useful very specifically around bereavement so thank you for clarifying that i didn't know the kind of history of why it was created and there's so much more. There's so much more to tell. There's so much more to experience. There's so much more that is felt yeah. around this whole subject. So so I interrupted myself yeah. by because I was trying to tell you, yeah. I was trying to answer the question yeah. about why, how. I've now forgotten the question, but 
just to say a little bit more about the young me. Yes. The young me suddenly found myself in a grieving situation without, it felt like I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the experience. I didn't know what to do. And so the next several decades has been me going, okay, what can I learn? How do I do it better? What's possible? Because at that time I felt like I just made terrible choices or I didn't know what would be helpful. So I did everything that might not have been great for me, but it was a good way of learning. Getting things wrong is a great way of learning things. So I got everything wrong then, but then became really interested in, okay, how can I do it better? How can I, next time someone dies, what do I say? How do I feel? What do I do? Yes. So I'll just focus it on getting it wrong. Because for me, I don't think you can ever get it wrong because your journey is your journey. And the journey is never wrong, right? Yeah. There's, there's no right yeah. and wrong. These kind of words and associated meanings we have with right and wrong, I think are flawed in right. some way. And I know what you mean as well, right? Yeah. You made choices that weren't necessarily in your best interest. Exactly. And yeah, I just wanted to dispel this wrongness. This Because we do sit in judgment of ourselves. Yeah. And we do pretty, pretty much every yeah. day. And for me... The way to explore potential, and this is a human potential pod- podcast, is to recognize when you are sat in judgment and allow that judgment to be there, but recognize it as a voice that you don't have to interact with. That mm. You don't have mm. to believe the story is telling you that mm. you're wrong for doing that, or that was such a terrible decision, mm. or you're so stupid for making that choice. Mm. Because once you can separate yourself from that, there's a peace mm. that you can acquire, and then you can actually attune to what is in my interest here. Yeah. Um, so you, yeah, so, so for me, that began an inquiry, yes. a, a learning process yes. of, okay, so what might I want to explore? How do I explore that? And I didn't set out at 23 to go, oh, I'm going to work with grief. But I began to be interested. I started reading. I started just being more available and noticing when those themes come up because death is around. Endings happen. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Life, life yes. gives us rich material to work yes. on this subject. Yes, yes. Talking of material and talking about books, right? Books. Yeah. So this is a book by Francis Weller. It's called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And it's an amazing book. And I know you know the book well. And just for the listeners out there, if any of you guys are experiencing grief, I would highly recommend that you go and purchase this book because this book actually spoke to my soul. The energy and the wisdom that Francis Weller portrays in this book and the way he writes is very, I want to say like a trance. It got me into this trance and it got me into this perspective of looking at grief very differently. And I want to go into the book and read you a mm-hmm. quote okay. and discuss that quote. And we're going to be, re- I'm going to be referencing this book okay. a couple of times because I think it's so powerful and it has such magic in it and there's such transformation in here as well so page 45 that's where i need to go to so yeah this is just a paragraph and he's talking uh, about how powerful grief is and he says grief is a powerful solvent capable of softening the hardest of places in our hearts when we can truly weep for ourselves and those places of shame we have invited the first soothing waters of healing to wash through our souls grieving by its very nature confirms worth 
I am I am worth crying over. My losses matter. I can still feel the grace that came when I truly allowed myself to grieve all of my losses connected to a life filled with shame. Mm-hmm. To me, just reading that is there's a visceral reaction because yeah. one of my programs is that I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of care. Yeah. And at some point, I'm not worthy to express my grief. Yeah. So when I read that, I was like, oh, there was a profound reality that grief is connected to the joy I want to feel in this yeah. life because I am worthy of joy and love. And I need to experience this grief yeah. in order to access those higher emotions yeah love to get your perspective on the shame and the worth that's connected with grief Mm. yeah for me there's something about being willing to be present to all of our experience and not to judge i'm not going to feel those feelings over there i'll just stick with the nice ones over here but that if we can welcome all of ourselves in, all of our experience in, there's something that can open us just to our aliveness for our full capacity to be human. And I think there are so many ways through, it may be through culture or socialisation or our neurobiology, there are so many ways in which people may have made unconscious decisions perhaps I'm not going to feel that or maybe there's been an external voice that says it's not okay to cry or it's not okay to feel that or you've got to be strong so there are very often this mix of internal shame of this part of me is not okay to show but if we allow ourselves to open to the possibility of vulnerability, the possibility of welcoming and allowing all of ourselves in, then we're also allowing not just the expression of sadness or loss or absence, but also to really value what we love. And there's this, I think this also points to grief, and loss being really close together, often the same, the same and different. That if we really love someone or something, then we, when we lose it, of course we will feel grief. Mm-hmm. So it's through value and loving of something that it also is inextricably linked to when that changes or we lose that, the pain of that is is really intermingled. So these two qualities are often side by side or together. Francis Weller talks so beautifully. He writes beautifully mm. as well. But he talks about his own experience of really having to go on a journey to find his relationship with expression. Yes, yes. Um, Which kind of brings me on to the next point that I wanted mm. to talk about with you because earlier on in our conversation you mentioned the messy parts of grief mm. and I actually wrote that down and what, what does that actually mean what does that look like to you because I think it's linked to what we we're just saying about 
grief and you know how it's linked to so many different aspects of life Mm. I think particularly in the age of social media we're constantly trying to appear our best selves we're trying to look cool how's my hair look how am I acceptable am I acceptable to belong to the group what's my image I may need to mask in some way to be perhaps in my professional role or I may need to mask to be acceptable to my peers. So what happens? How do we get to a place where it's possible to reveal our authentic selves, which may include snot or tears or the absence of feeling and our or frustration and all the things that don't feel like they're the things that we can, hey, put on social media. They're not necessarily what we want to present as our our public face. Sure. But what happens when we do find, and it's not appropriate to put that everywhere. I'm not saying that. But what happens when we find spaces where it is possible to welcome in all of that? It can be really powerful. Yeah. And we will talk about that because, <laughs> because that's that's a fascinating subject and something that I've experienced directly yeah. through the work that you do. Yeah. And before we go there, I just want to go back to Francis Weller and he talks about the five gate, gateways of grief. And I don't want to go all through all five because it's in the book and you can go and read what he has to say about them. There is one aspect of the gateways that I do want to discuss, which is the fifth gate, as he refers mm-hmm. to, which is ancestral grief. And the reason I want to talk about this is because it's very prominent in our world now. If you look in the Middle East, what's happening there, there's a level of ancestral grief that's being carried by those people that are experiencing war in that region. We know from the black community about the ancestral grief that they carry and also about ancestral grief that we as individuals carry from our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents mm-hmm. and recognising sometimes that grief is not our own mm-hmm. and we've just carried it through a lineage, through, yeah, through genetics, through DNA mm-hmm. and how we recognise that and let it go in a way when we know actually this is not my grief do i need to hold on to this do i actually need to grieve for this is there a grieving process required is this really mine love to get your thoughts on that yes so to unpack that a little bit uh francis weller's work invites um starting points for people to look at grief in a wider a wider doorway, not just as this narrow focus of bereavement, but to see many other threads, many other possibilities, many other experiences that may create, it may be layers or a weave or a network or an an entangling mix of different sources of grief. Where does my grief come from? And so often it's a real mix of things. And for me, part of this work is to begin to understand, to bring to light the different sources of what, where does my experience come from? What is mine? What is mine to process? What has been mine that I've, that is not mine that I've carried? What have I also done to others? So beginning to see how these different sources of grief, including ancestral grief, affect us all, that it's not necessarily just 
personal experience of my loss of this one person. But when we recognize how do we all feel about something that is happening right now in the collective? And my experience is that the personal is often an easier way in to feeling, to expression. So if something has happened directly to me, a relationship breakup, the death of my pet, the loss of something that is in my current life is often the way into feeling. But if we start to unpack what else am I carrying, what Mm. else is in the mix of how I feel when I lie at five in the morning and think, how is it to be me, a human, in these times? Very often there's such a an additional layer of the collective, of intergenerational, not just what have I received from the generations before me and what I have metered out in my cultural history, but also what have I dumped on my kids? Where where have I taken care and processed my own stuff so that I'm not also landing it on someone with less power than me? For the first step for me is this recognition that, oh, that, that might be grief too. And oh, that over there, that's affecting me. And when I see that on the TV and I think of how the people that came before me must have felt, whoa. And when we start to look with a broader perspective, it can be very powerful. It can also be overwhelming. For me, it can offer listening to the news, it's too much. So often it's too much. So how do we do the work of staying engaged, of beginning to open to what is happening around us, to see that we're we may be experiencing collective traumas and not just personal ones, but also the weight of whatever has landed in our system. And the epigenetics show that trauma stays in the body for seven generations. So what what has happened in the seven generations before me? And what will what will I land on the seven generations yes. after yes. me? Yes. That's so sorry, just to interrupt you. <laughs> That in itself is a very, like you just said, a very powerful driving force for me to explore grief because there'll be lots of parents who are listening to this and I promote self-awareness on this podcast, become self-aware, self-observe, what's going on for you, what's going on in in your childhood, what's going on with your parents, what's going on with your grandparents and what are you projecting onto your children? And this has opened up, okay, what grief am I carrying that is actually stopping me from having the most loving, caring nurturing relationship with my child Mm. and how is that impacting the way I develop that relationship so tending to grief in that way Mm. again going back to my earlier point is a portal to create more love communion joy spirit amongst humans and the collective so I'd just like to invite in a tool that I like to use. Yes, please. This is the Human Potential Podcast, <laughs> and we love tools, and we want actionable tools that people can go and use and incorporate in their daily lives. So please, yes. So for me, this is a super powerful tool. It's a real ninja one that you can use anywhere, anywhere. Ninja hack, yeah. 
and it's the pause. So I'm hearing just speaking these words around the collective, around the ancestral. It's big stuff. So just inviting a pause. Yeah, just noticing that we've been talking about some big themes, that it may be touching something in you, if you're listening. Just letting you know that, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed that pause. Yeah. Pause is a great reset. It's a great tool. Uh, but I also want to invite the possibility of remembering what supports you in that when themes that are tough come up we don't have to go down there we can step back and remember oh yeah what are the things that I love what makes me feel good you know we're making this gentle we might be moving towards our experience in the pause, but we might also just be giving ourselves a breather. And they maybe notice what's out the window or something around you. I'm a big touch person. I love to just keep connecting with myself, especially if something feels activating or stirring in some way. Yeah, oh. Ah, let's just have a pause. Thanks for pausing with me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for introducing it. Thanks for introducing that tool. And again, it's a, it's a great tool. It's it's there's a grounding quality to it. Yeah, it allows you to ground, taking the moment to become present. Yeah, to inquire what's going on for you, what parts of you activated. Yeah, honouring the body, wondering where you're at. I love it. Just thank you for sharing that. I think it's so powerful, but it's also really useful in pretty much any situation. And if you're in a situation where it doesn't feel possible, I really encourage you to go to the loo and do it. <laughs> Privacy. Yeah, that can allow the moment of, yeah. oh, yeah, stepping yeah. away just for a moment. Okay, so look, mo moving it on, and we have talked about some heavy themes there, ancestral grief. I want to talk about how we deal with grief in the West. And in particular, this concept around private pain, mm. meaning there's a level of, I can't be vulnerable. I can't mm. express my grief. I can't show my grief. So what do I do? I internalize it. Mm. I suppress it. I ignore it. I avoid it. And for me, and in my experience of grief in, in the Western world, that's been the predominant program and conditioning of how we've been brought up to, to deal with our grief in private, mm. which to me means you're not actually expressing it or releasing it or letting it go, doing all the appropriate and healthy things that one can do in tending to their grief. What are your thoughts on that? So there's a couple of things I want to raise. Mm. One is... Uh, not everyone's experience is the same. Yes. So there are maybe family traditions or cultural traditions around, particularly around bereavement, that there may be processes that are in living memory. It may be that people have parents or grandparents 
who knew ways to care around grief. There are traditions, traditions like Nine Night in the West Indies, traditions around preparing a body, for mm. instance, in Muslim traditions. Yes, yeah. Sitting Shiva yeah. in Jewish traditions and wakes that come from perhaps the Irish. Yes. So there are families and there are cultures where very much those traditions that help us with processing grief are still alive enough. Yes, yes. And sometimes it can be important to remember that and maybe to ask, you know, your granny if she's still around or other members of family, oh, what did our people used to do? Is there a way? And, And some families are just, better at being honest and being open and in some families there's just more of a culture of oh yeah how are you feeling yeah give us a hug and so just acknowledging that it's not everyone sure and also that it is very common for people to experience yeah we don't deal with pain that's something we hide away that's something that's not for public consumption not at the dinner table not on Facebook, or if it is, maybe it's met with shaming or judgment around, oh, that person has overshared. But so there's a time to share and a time not to share. It's not always right. So there's a time when it's really healthy to move towards expression and sometimes where it will just tip us over the edge. So knowing what's right for you when is really helpful but also how different the experience of grief is when it is held. And that may be as simple as a small child who's injured themselves. How would it be if that parent was able to mirror and reflect to them? Oh, yeah, I see that really hurts. What do you need? Would you like a cuddle? That is a simple experience of someone dealing with pain, and then receiving caring in a way that holds it, that doesn't minimise it, but it allows it to be, that can be a really helpful process. So again, coming out from that, how is it to have our pain seen and received in a group? And particularly in British culture, that has not been the tradition. Mm. Yeah, and I hear you speaking to that. And it's also good to discern, absolutely good to discern, and yeah. that's why I said in my experience. And, yeah. and I was actually thinking about a very recent experience where I was in an office environment and someone's, someone I was working with, their mother had just passed. Yeah. And I could see this level of tension within yeah. people yeah. that they didn't even want to ask yeah. the guy yeah. how he's doing, how yeah. are you? Because there was this big event that's occurred, and because it, yeah. it was so avoided, and so it's under talked about or repressed. Yeah. I'm going to use yeah. the word repressed. That hang on, we're not going there. Yeah, we know his mum died. This is work. He needs to deal with it. So there's a great fear in not knowing how to respond. Yes, and not knowing what to say. Yes. So let's not say anything. Yes. Let's not acknowledge it. And there's also this, I think, really complicated tendency to use euphemisms rather than to say, what has happened? What has happened? I feel really distressed because my cat has died. It's simple and true. And yet what 
might people feel, might people say. There's a lot of shame of, am I allowed to feel that? Am I allowed to say that? And for someone else to go, I don't, that's not been an experience that I can relate to. I don't know what to say about that. Sure. But also what happens, it's really different to experience grief in a group. Yeah. So just before we go yeah. there, okay. and I'm going to talk deeper yeah. about that, I just want to circle back to this guy that lost his mum. And like you just said, people tend to avoid it because they don't know what to say. Yeah. And just to make the point that there's no judgment on how people react to that because I didn't know there was another way to be yeah. with grief and someone who's experiencing grief yeah. until I did the work, did the research, learned yeah. from someone like you, learned from Francis Weller, yeah. that there is a different way to respond and there's a different way to be and behave and act so it's a part of that is down to experiencing my own grief because that was yeah. my gateway to learning. Yeah. And that's the important point for me, learning, educating yourself, yeah. questioning conventionality as to, okay, yeah. how can I see and hear and hold and love this person yeah. in a way that's good for them? Because the person may not want to receive that. Yeah. The person may be in their own avoidance of the situation. So a couple of things in response to that. One is there are tools, there are ways of doing it that we can learn and that we can practice. So I hope that in the work that we do, that is something that people become more comfortable with, learning how to receive someone who may be grieving, learning what's normal, what's okay, what the spectrum of how does, what does grief look like, what's okay. That it's important to get a bit more experience of all that. So psychoeducation is a really important part of this. But also, for me, one of the principal things that I think is helpful to learn is how to sit with discomfort. So how do I sit with discomfort in myself? If I am distressed or upset or anxious, how to... How to tend to that in myself in my own inner experience how can I get more comfortable with that and how do you do that Sarah how do you Sarah sit with your discomfort so there are again, practices and skills of tools to calm the nervous system I find one of the things that I find super helpful again you can do this anywhere and it's a really low-cost solution but my body speaks in chemical signals. My body does not with my mind and my mind has a different agenda. So sometimes to create a kind of feedback mechanism between body and mind, it can be really helpful to notice, try and notice what am I feeling, try and identify the feeling. And very often we don't have within, great the, body within the body. Or the body is sometimes an uncomfortable place. Mm. So within your own experience, we often don't have great vocabulary around different feelings. So just trying to notice what is it I'm actually feeling? What is this emotion or sensation? And oh, maybe it's maybe maybe I'm angry. Am I angry? How does that feel? And it can be really helpful to just say, Oh yeah, I'm angry. To so to speak aloud to your own system. Mm to say, oh yeah, this is anger, I'm angry. 
And that can sometimes really help. Oh, the body goes, oh, at last you've received the signal sure. I'm sending to you. I'm sending you, you, you I'm sending it. you yeah. tension yeah. and maybe rising sense of, there can be all sorts of physical sensations. And so when you then let the body know, oh yeah, that's happening, it can help to settle. But there are also many tools of uh, practices and tools that help soothe that help settle that help and for different people they're going to be different so very often people have already have things that they do but they've never consciously thought oh that's a thing I'm doing to help me feel better when I'm cross it may be that they take a shower and that's a really great way for them of oh or changing clothes after work that may be a great way of changing your nervous system state but people often don't recognise that's what they're doing. Yeah. So th- getting awareness around, oh yeah, my I'm what is what am I feeling, and what would be helpful to me right yeah. now? And for me, what really helps me is when I do that, when I take a shower, when I change my clothes, is the power of the intention behind that. Yeah, because it for me it amplifies. Okay, I'm taking some action just to recognise what's going on in my body. Yeah, and to facilitate a change yeah. in my being in the sense of being if I want to change if I'm being sad or lonely or sad. so the power of your intention for me and I talk about this all the time on this podcast is paramount in how you receive the actually act the yeah. act of having a shower yeah. the yeah. act of changing your clothes yeah. the act of going into meditation the act of pausing right why yeah. am I pausing what's going on in my body yeah. is it just change my state noticing and not making ourselves wrong, noticing, I'm really angry, I'm going to stuff it down, I'm going to eat and eat. That may be what you need to do on that day. How do you know my program <laughs> And not to make it wrong, but notice, oh, maybe, maybe I'm stuffing. What feelings am I stuffing down? What am I shutting down? And... I think there's a lot of, in particularly in kind of conscious circles, there can be a real tyranny around expressing feelings. It can be a sense of, you must express your feelings. And I, I want to really question that and say, actually, sometimes the most helpful thing in the moment may be to step back from your feelings. Maybe that your your overwhelm is really what you need right now to be able to keep functioning and do what you need to do right now. So in the work of grief tending, both the possibility of sitting with discomfort, either internal or for others or in the wider world, but also this choice. Do I step toward feeling right now or is now not the moment? Do I need to return to something that's going to help me settle. Maybe it's late at night. Do I need to be activated right now? No, actually, you know what? I just need to find, maybe I'll just do a little breathing. Maybe I'll take a pause. (sighs) How can I let that go right now? Maybe I need to deal with that tomorrow. So being being intentional around is this a step I need to move towards right now? Would it be helpful? Will it expand me to move towards feeling right now? Actually, right now, do I need to take a step back? And in the 
groups that we facilitate, that's one of the skills we hope that we communicate, this dance of forwards and backwards mm. and so that it becomes easier. It's a skill. You learn how to step towards and step away to help support what you need right now. So that's very interesting because, again, I think that's a very important point that these practices, these tools are skills. Mm. And how do we hone our skills? How do we get better at our skills? We practice them. Mm. And I also know, being a human being, that when my nervous system is activated i along with other human beings can become hijacked so we go mm. completely unconscious right mm. I, I had it like a couple of weeks ago mm. something happened i got fired by the way mm. oh by the way there's a great podcast that I, <laughs> that's coming out about how i got fired so i encourage you guys to listen to that and um, so i was activated what did i do i ordered a takeaway and i put on netflix mm. right and I don't say that in judgment of myself. Mm. I'm just giving that as an example. Mm. I didn't pause. I didn't take a breath. I didn't tune in to say, okay, what am I feeling? What's the, where's the sensations? Mm. I was like, I want some food mm. and I want to numb this pain. I want to numb this rejection. And I want to completely switch off mm. and watch trash on TV. Mm. So my point is that there has to be a level of self-awareness, a level of consciousness around what am I feeling in this moment? And that, to me, comes, like you said, with practice, mm. right? Making it repetitive, doing it every day. Yeah. And even then you can still become hijacked, right? Because there's no right or wrong. It's not an exact science. Yeah. It's like practice, become aware, understand what you like. You so beautifully said, what are you moving towards here mm. in this moment? What do I need right now? Yeah. yeah. Another of my favourite impossible tasks is to be kind to yourself i'm not going to solve the ancestral grief of my forebears tonight mm. i'm not going to i'm not going to be able to do very much tonight maybe tonight's not the night to do anything at all maybe i really need to just give myself a break am i always going to be in that space well maybe not but Maybe tonight, what would what do I need right now? And it might well be that with your intention, you just need to watch some TV. Yeah. Great. So look, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to come to my favourite bit now, which is actually what I experienced in this paradigm of being seen, being held, being part of a community, being feeling safe, feeling supported, which allowed me to be vulnerable allowed my grief to rise to the surface and this is what you do in your workshops in your weekends is you tend to grief in the form along with other things in the form of ritual mm. and i know it's based on i always get this name wrong so i've written it down um maladoma Sone, who i don't know how would you describe a shaman a wise man a, a tribesman who comes from west africa and burkina faso and he talks about how they tend to their grief and it's within communion with community mm. and within ritual. Yeah. And that was my experience of coming to your workshop is, and it was so powerful, Sarah, it's something that stayed in my heart that as we entered ritual mm. and as you facilitated this space of community, mm. 
And as we, I was in communion with the other people, we were complete strangers, by the way. It was like 14 or 15 of us, complete strangers. And you, with your experience and your love and your care, established this community where we felt safe and vulnerable with each other. And when we created that, we went into ritual. And by ritual, it was very simple. There was an altar of grief that when we felt the need to go and express our grief, we went to the altar. And I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. It was so profound. It was, it was just transformational on so many levels for me. And my own experience of that grief was I actually felt the grief rising in me as we were in song, because we were in song, we were in ceremony, we were in ritual. As we were singing, I had this sensation of what is going on in my body. It actually felt like vomit, right? When you vomit and it rises and it comes out. I actually felt this feeling, this energy just rising in me like I was going to vomit. And then when it got to my throat, I was like, what the fuck is this? I've never experienced this. I realized something needs to be expressed and something needs to come out. And I realized I need to go to the altar. This is my turn. This is my time now. And as I went to the altar, it just poured out of me in the form of tears, just uncontrollable, shaking, snot everywhere, messy grief, because that's what was created. I was allowed to be messy. This grief, this grief just poured out of me, crying. And it lasted about 20 minutes. I was knelt, I was kneeling at the altar for 20 minutes, just crying. And I remember as I stopped, as I felt, okay, I feel complete. And I turned around, there was the community to welcome me, to say to me, hey, well done for expressing your grief. We here, we're here for you. We love you. And remember, these are 14 strangers, right? But the power of the community, right? There was this crescendo of energy and love and being seen and held, which allowed me to heal. Mm. It was so profoundly healing. And I actually remember that when I left that your house that day, we're actually in service house today. When, we, when I left your house, I felt about two stones lighter. Mm. And my body was telling me, hey, to sprint. So I sprinted like a madman, right? I had all this energy sprinting down the end of your street to my car. So why, why am I saying this? I'm recording this because I want to explore the power of ritual, the power of ceremony, the power of feeling safe in community and communion and how that facilitated profound healing, profound change within me. And I know because I kept in touch with the people that were on that workshop retreat, how profound it was for them as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing your experience. It sounds really strong and that's not an uncommon experience, yeah. I think. Yeah, there's a few different threads in there that I might pull on. And one is there are ways in which to create safety or safe enough in a group of people. So we work very slowly and gently, step by yes. step. We're not about to throw someone into something that sounds... If I was... If I didn't know, yeah, that would yeah. sound like, yeah. wow, that's Too much. way Thank out you. of my comfort zone. That yeah. sounds... If I were to hear that, I'd be like, oh, not me, no, thank you. But this is a really important part because it it was a lead up. You're right. Yeah. There was a step, there were process that allowed people to 
yeah. go into that ritual and experience what they need to experience. And I really hope one of my strongest intentions is to give permission to people to find their own way, to, to not have to do anything they don't want to do. Even for people who come to one of our groups, they don't have to do that. They can, and, and that is made very clear, and, it, and that message is repeated. Now that you're saying yeah. it, it's like, oh yeah, that was repeated over and over again. So that's part of how you create safety is knowing that I don't have to do it. I don't have to go into my terror zone here. Yes. It's about really welcoming in kindness and self-care about how we step into more what might be more challenging territory. And also to just name some of the things, yeah, we bring threads together many threads together that inform our work and the way that we work so we have a number of different teachers who've brought different lineages and different heritages heritages in the weave that we create so our own teachers Sophie Banks and Jeremy Thres teachers from western psychotherapeutic traditions like Francis Weller from Joanna Macy Martine Prechtel Many different teachers coming together with more of an understanding and also grief theory as well, but bringing a mix of indigenous perspectives and modern understandings together to explore how can we work, how can we work together with grief? And yeah, so, you know, really offering my thanks and gratitude to those, those traditions and also recognising I'm not a Dagara tribes person. That tradition has sadly been very much changed over the course of the last few decades. But to recognise there's something really valuable to learn from that. And how can I bring that into an urban, modern context? People for whom... Even the word ritual or ceremony can be like, oh, no, thank you. Yeah. There was actually a woman who, in the sharing circle afterwards, said, I thought this was going to be a load of new age bullshit. <laughs> and she was conscious of that, right? Because ritual ceremony does have certain implications. It has certain hidden yeah. meanings to them. Or that certain people attach stories to those words. Yeah. And again, yeah, please discern and make clear for people what you're actually providing. Very often people come with I, I call it wounding from maybe their faith or cultural traditions that maybe haven't been supportive to them or haven't been available to them or maybe people come with many different belief systems and we welcome that all in you don't have to believe in a particular tradition atheists are welcome we try and create a space where Everyone is welcome to participate. And yet we're also often in this modern context where we haven't had elders, we haven't had traditions that are supportive and holding and familiar. So we're trying to create a new form, new ways to, to work using ritual, which can be so helpful to hold a container of space to hold a space in which things might happen, that the ritual process itself can really support a group, support an individual to to be with feeling in a kind of way that is 
includes something that I might call mystery. It's It might be something that's a bit out of my comfort zone, out of my awareness of normal life. I can't perhaps explain exactly what happens when a group of people come together with a shared intention to move towards grief and to allow an openness to a ritual process. So there's something that may be mysterious in that, but it is time-honoured. People throughout time have come together in circle, around a fire, or to sing together, to speak together. So in some ways, it's something that we may know deep in our bones, we may long for, but never have experienced. It may also be something that just feels really clunky. Essentially, what we're doing is we're experimenting together. Where how can we be with the awkwardness of not knowing how to do ritual or not knowing if it's okay or what what I need to believe in to feel that this is working for me. So it's all an experiment. And I love one of the things that Sophie Banks, who's one of my teachers, says she always prefaces, I should have begun today, she always prefaces with, this is not the truth. You know, to really acknowledge this is one way. Yes. It might work for you. It's not for everybody. But also, what happens when we approach something with curiosity and the possibility that we might be, if we feel safe enough, that we might be able to be a little bit more authentic? Sure. And what happens very often with a group of people is when people understand that's possible and they begin to step into a space of more authenticity than they imagined they would be able to feel with a group of strangers, something happens. Something magical <laughs> happens. And this is what I love about the tapestry that you've woven or that you're weaving here because you, you created an environment where everyone felt safe. And I'm, I'm using the metric of the contributions that were made by people. Mm. And I came from a background where I'm a coach, I'm part of, I'm used to being in ceremony, I'm used to being in ritual, I'm used to sharing. Mm. And so it was quite natural and easy for me to engage in the kind of the container that you created. And I also know there was lots of people who it was completely new to them, right? It, mm. they, like you said, there were, if they were to share they were going to step outside their comfort zones mm. and what you created though and the steps and the process you used it allowed those people to feel safe mm. they sensed a level of security mm. and when that happens with human beings magic can occur mm. especially when you factor in the power of intention like you just said mm. and i remember seeing these people who in the morning were so reserved and a few hours later, they were expressing what they'd come to express. Mm. They were sharing from mm. their heart, mm. pure authenticity. Mm. And I was like, wow. Mm. It was very amazing and very powerful for me to actually witness that. There's like a real honour to be with people in that process and to see faces and bodies shift. I often think I wish I'd got people to do a selfie at the beginning 
and a selfie at the end. That's a good and idea. Just notice. You would have seen me sprinting down the street. <laughs> yeah. You know what's different? Yeah. And so often faces soften, or maybe colour comes to cheeks, or tension lifts. Yeah. People have really different experiences course, too. Yeah. Um, and look, it can be, it was hard work, right? It, <laughs> it, it was tough. It was big for me, and I, from the people there, I don't want to speak for them, but from the sense I got, people were going through stuff. Mm. They were experiencing heavy stuff, and yet it was so engaging. It was a choice they were making, a conscious choice mm. to experience this, and that's why the work you do and the ritual and ceremony for me is so powerfully transformative because the environment that you create allows transformation to occur. So what I love, and people often express that it's really surprising about this work, the work of grief tending, the work of giving space to whatever feelings, whatever sources of grief are there. What people often say is surprising is how much fun it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You yes. know, because you know, it allows all of our humanity to be more present, and I think that's come and have some fun, express your grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, the purpose of doing this work is not just to make people feel better, yeah. so that they can go on to participate in systems of harm, to work themselves to the bone without really having access to self-care. The purpose of this work is to share and experience a different way of being together where our relationships are perhaps at the centre, where the, to understand the possibility of how can we work together for a better world, how can we feel more connected to the people around us, but also to nature, how can we care more for the world we live in. So there's a kind of greater intention. Yeah, and look, yeah. I think that's an important point because actually going back to Francis Weller's book, he talks about the sorrow we feel for Mother Earth. Mm. And there's lots of people, and I know you're deeply connected to nature and the Earth, that are grieving for the state of our beloved Earth mm. and what she's experiencing in her change. Mm. And there is a grief around that. I was so unaware of it, even though in my own little world I thought I was being environmentally friendly and doing my bit to, to harness the power of our, of our beautiful earth. People grieve. People are in sorrow for what's happening to, to our oceans, to our mountains, to our land. And it was a very great awareness for me to go, oh, wow, okay. So that's another aspect of grief that goes beyond the bereavement part. And if we can feel, Francis Weller describes the sorrows of the world. Yes. Yes. And they can be overwhelming. Mm. But if we can feel enough, feel sometimes, there's more possibility of connection. And with connection, there's more possibility of working in service for life so we may be just tending to the people that come through our doors but maybe that won't ripple out to 
to many others. And may those people maybe go out to their family and colleagues and may, maybe they'll be a little different. Maybe their what's changed in them will allow a little more authentic relating to others. So I like this idea that we may be at all scales working for more awareness, more ability to be present to life, to be part of life. Look, that, that's the intention of this podcast, right? This is my intention to actually embody everything you've just said, mm. to have that ripple effect. If someone listening to this mm. may look you up, may come mm. to your workshop, mm. what's the benefit to that person? Let me speak of my own benefits. I suddenly felt alive again. Mm. I suddenly felt my heart opening up again. Mm. And I was pumping this positive energy out, right? Because there was a purpose now. I felt reinvigorated. I felt a sense of joy returning from the loss that I experienced. And the ripple effect will be on my son. Daddy's happier. Right? It will be on my sister. Right? I'll be a better brother. It will be in the work I do, in the things I create. So it's huge. What I'm saying is like one, one experience can have such a powerful knock-on ripple effect mm. that can impact and affect so many people's lives. Mm. And this is what I hope that this podcast will do. I'm hoping the conversation will do this so people will look and explore and be curious mm. about grief. And we've touched on so many subjects with such emotive responses like community and communion and mm. safety and joy and love mm. and sadness and sorrow. And it's mm. all been present, right? And all these let's call them emotions, they have a voice. They all want to be seen and they all want to be heard. Mm. They all want to be acknowledged as the body does, right? Because we experience those in our body. And when we do, that's where, for me, change, transformation, this fostering of happiness, the recalling of love into our lives, the remembering of what am I here to experience? Yes, I'm here to experience all the things that I've just talked about. Mm. And I'm also here to experience profound and exquisite love mm. and for me grief has been a great portal it's been a it's been a companion for the last two years on my journey to to experience love mm. thank you yeah thank you <laughs> thank you sarah yeah. yeah so yeah look i haven't got any more notes <laughs> shall we have a yeah. pause we can have a pause yeah there is i want to finish off by using a quote from the book again, because I think it's a very beautiful quote and I think it's a great end. So I'd love to just invite a pause yeah. to just really have a moment to feel into all those beautiful qualities yes. you just named. Ah, what would it be like? How does it feel in ourselves to imagine that we're surrounded and held by love, mm. connection, our needs are met? Let's welcome in all of that too. It's a great pause. That's a great. That's a great talk because it allowed me to experience everything that I've just said, actually, in a deeper way, on a visceral level. So, let me read this quote. <laughs> Unless there's anything that you you want to add, I think we've covered a lot. The scope and breadth of the discussions have been huge, and it's been amazing. And I I know it's been very informative. Everything that I hoped that this vision would be. So thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you from welcome. the bottom of my heart for being part of this. And let me go to page 70. 
just to finish this podcast off. And this is again from Francis Weller's book. And he says, all too often we deny our grief because it is not as severe as someone else's. How can we possibly compare our sorrows to those who are suffering the horrors of war or the devastation brought about by tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, or intolerable poverty? It is easy to dismiss our grief when we compare it to circumstances we consider to be much worse than our own. But the grief is ours. We must treat it as worthy of attention. In fact, it is essential for us to welcome our grief, whatever form it takes. When we do, we open ourselves to our shared experiences in life. Grief is our common bond. Opening to our sorrow connects us with everyone, everywhere. There is no gesture of kindness that is wasted, no offering of compassion that is useless. We can be generous to every sorrow we see. It is sacred work. Mm. It's beautiful. Thank you. It is sacred work. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey of exploring human potential. Now, it's your turn to take action and unleash your own greatness. Head over to soulful-awakening.com forward slash free and opt in for lots of free transformational tools. Embrace the knowledge and insights you've gained and start implementing them in your life today. Remember, the world is waiting for your incredible potential to shine.